0: chapter 21 of the education of henry adams by henry adams this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 21 20 years after 1892 once more this is a story of education not of adventure it is meant to help young men or such as have intelligence enough to seek help but it is not meant to amuse them what one did or did not do with one's education after getting it need trouble the inquirer in no way it is a personal matter which would only confuse him perhaps henry adams was not worth educating most keen judges incline to think that barely one man in a hundred owns a mind capable of reacting to any purpose on the forces that surround him and fully half of these react wrongly The object of education for that mind should be the teaching itself how to react with vigour and economy. No doubt the world at large will always lag so far behind the active mind as to make a soft cushion of inertia to drop upon, as it did for Henry Adams. But education should try to lessen the obstacles, diminish the friction, invigorate the energy, and should train minds to react, not at haphazard but by choice, ON THE LINES OF FORCE THAT ATTRACT THEIR WORLD. WHAT ONE KNOWS IS IN YOUTH OF LITTLE MOMENT. THEY KNOW ENOUGH WHO KNOW HOW TO LEARN. THROUGHOUT HUMAN HISTORY THE WASTE OF MIND HAS BEEN APPALLING, AND AS THIS STORY IS MEANT TO SHOW, SOCIETY HAS CONSPIRED TO PROMOTE IT. NO DOUBT THE TEACHER IS THE WORST CRIMINAL, BUT THE WORLD STANDS BEHIND HIM AND DRAGS THE STUDENT FROM HIS COURSE. THE MORAL IS STENTORIAN. Only the most energetic, the most highly fitted, and the most favoured have overcome the friction or the viscosity of inertia, and these were compelled to waste three-fourths of their energy in doing it. Fit or unfit, Henry Adams stopped his own education in 1871, and began to apply it for practical uses, like his neighbours. At the end of twenty years he found that he had finished, and could sum up the result. He had no complaint to make against man or woman. They had all treated him kindly. He had never met with ill-will, ill-temper, or even ill-manners, or known a quarrel. He had never seen serious dishonesty or ingratitude. He had found a readiness in the young to respond to suggestion that seemed to him far beyond all that he had reason to expect. Considering the stock complaints against the world, he could not understand why he had nothing to complain of. During these twenty years he had done as much work, in quantity, as his neighbours wanted—more than they would ever stop to look at, and more than his share. Merely in print he thought altogether ridiculous the number of volumes he counted on the shelves of public libraries. He had no notion whether they served a useful purpose. He had worked in the dark. But so had most of his friends, even the artists, none of whom held a lofty opinion of their success in raising the standards of society or felt profound respect for the methods or manners of their time at home or abroad but all of whom had tried in a way to hold the standard up the effort had been for the older generation exhausting as one could see in the hunts but the generation after eighteen seventy made more figure not in proportion to public wealth or in the census but in their own self-assertion a fair number of the men who were born in the thirties had won names Philip Brooks, Bret Hart, Henry James, H. H. Richardson, John Lafarge, and the list might be made fairly long if it were worth while. But from their school had sprung others, like Augustus St. mc McKim, Stanford White, and scores born in the forties, who counted as force even in the mental inertia of sixty or eighty million people. Among these Clarence King. John Hay and Henry Adams had led modest existences, trying to fill in the social gaps of a class which as yet showed but thin ranks and little cohesion. The combination offered no very glittering prizes, but they pursued it for twenty years, with as much patience and effort as thought it led to fame or power, until at last Henry Adams thought his own duties sufficiently performed, and his account with society settled. He had enjoyed his life amazingly, and would not have exchanged it for any other that came in his way. He was, or thought he was, perfectly satisfied with it. But for reasons that had nothing to do with education, he was tired. His nervous energy ran low. And, like a horse that wears out, he quitted the race-course, left the stable, and sought pastures as far as possible from the old. Education had ended in 1871. Life was complete in 1890. 1890 the rest mattered so little as had happened so often he found himself in london when the question of return imposed its verdict on him after much fruitless effort to rest elsewhere the time was the month of january 1892 he was alone in hospital in the gloom of midwinter he was close on his 54th birthday and paul mall had forgotten him as completely as it had forgotten his elders he had not seen london for a dozen years and was rather amused to have only a bed for a world and a familiar black fog for horizon the coal fire smelt home-like the fog had a fruity taste of youth anything was better than being turned out into the wastes of wigmore street he could always amuse himself by living over his youth and driving once more down oxford street in eighteen fifty eight with life before him to imagine far less amusing than it had turned out to be The future attracted him less. Lying there for a week he reflected on what he could do next. He had just come up from the South Seas with John Lafarge, who had reluctantly crawled away toward New York to resume the grinding routine of studio work at an age when life runs low. Adams would rather, as choice, have gone back to the East, if it were only to sleep forever in the trade winds under the southern stars, wandering over the dark purple ocean with its purple sense of solitude and void. Not that he liked the sensation, but that it was the most unearthly he had felt. He had not yet happened on Rudyard Kipling's Mandalay, but he knew the poetry before he knew the poem, like millions of wanderers who have perhaps alone felt the world exactly as it is. Nothing attracted him less than the idea of beginning a new education. The old one had been poor enough. Any new one could only add to its faults life had been cut in halves and the old half had passed away education and all leaving no stock to graft on the new world he faced in paris and london seemed to him fantastic willing to admit it real in the sense of having some kind of existence outside his own mind he could not admit it reasonable in paris his heart sank to mere pulp before the dismal ballets at the grand opera and the eternal vaudeville at the old palais royal But except for them, his own Paris of the Second Empire was as extinct as that of the first Napoleon. At the galleries and exhibitions he was racked by the effort of art to be original, and when one day, after much reflection, John Lafarge asked whether there might not still be room for something simple in art, Adams shook his head. As he saw the world, it was no longer simple, and could not express itself simply. It should express what it was— and this was something that neither Adams nor Lafarge understood. Under the first blast of this furnace-heat the lights seemed fairly to go out. He felt nothing in common with the world as it promised to be. He was ready to quit it, and the easiest path led back to the east. But he could not venture alone, and the rarest of animals is a companion. He must return to America to get one. Perhaps while waiting he might write more history, and on the chance, as a last resource, he gave orders for copying everything he could reach in archives. But this was mere habit. He went home as a horse goes back to his stable, because he knew nowhere else to go. Home was Washington. As soon as Grant's administration ended, in 1877, and Everts became Secretary of State, Adams went back there partly to write history but chiefly because his seven years of laborious banishment in boston convinced him that as far as he had a function in life it was as stable companion to statesmen whether they liked it or not at about the same time old george bancroft did the same thing and presently john hay came on to be assistant secretary of state for mr everts and stayed there to write the life of lincoln in eighteen eighty four adams joined him in employing richardson to build them adjoining houses on lafayette square as far as adams had a home this was it to the house on lafayette square he must turn for he had no other status no position in the world never did he make a decision more reluctantly than this of going back to his manger his father and mother were dead all his family led settled lives of their own except for two or three friends in washington who were themselves uncertain of stay no one cared whether he came or went and he cared least there was nothing to care about everyone was busy nearly everyone seemed contented since eighteen seventy one nothing had ruffled the surface of the american world and even the progress of europe in her sideway track to dis-europeaning herself had ceased to be violent After a dreary January in Paris, at last, when no excuse could be persuaded to offer itself for further delay, he crossed the Channel and passed a week with his old friend, Milnes Gaskell, at Thorns, in Yorkshire, while the westerly gales raved a warning against going home. Yorkshire in January is not an island in the South Seas. It has few points of resemblance to Tahiti, not many to Fiji or Samoa. But as so often before, it was a rest between past and future, and Adams was grateful for it at last on February third he drove after a fashion down the Irish Channel on board the Teutonic. He had not crossed the Atlantic for a dozen years and had never seen an ocean steamer of the new type. He had seen nothing new of any sort or much changed in France or England. The railways made quicker time but were no more comfortable. The scale was the same. THE CHANNEL SERVICE WAS HARDLY IMPROVED SINCE 1858, OR SO LITTLE AS TO MAKE NO IMPRESSION. EUROPE SEEMED TO HAVE BEEN STATIONARY FOR TWENTY YEARS. TO A MAN WHO HAD BEEN STATIONARY LIKE EUROPE, THE TEUTONIC WAS A MARVEL. THAT HE SHOULD BE ABLE TO EAT HIS DINNER THROUGH A WEEK OF HOWLING WINTER GALES WAS A MIRACLE. THAT HE SHOULD HAVE A DECK STATEROOM WITH FRESH AIR, AND READ ALL NIGHT IF HE CHOSE BY ELECTRIC LIGHT, WAS MATTER FOR MORE WONDER THAN LIFE HAD YET SUPPLIED IN ITS OLD FORMS wonder may be double even treble adams's wonder ran off into figures as the niagara was to the teutonic as eighteen sixty was to eighteen ninety so the teutonic and eighteen ninety must be to the next term and then apparently the question concerned only america western europe offered no such conundrum there one might double scale and speed indefinitely without passing bounds fate was kind on that voyage rudyard kipling on his wedding trip to america thanks to the mediation of henry james dashed over the passenger his exuberant fountain of gaiety and wit as though playing a garden hose on a thirsty and faded begonia kipling could never know what peace of mind he gave for he could hardly ever need it himself so much and yet in the full delight of his endless fun and variety one felt the old conundrum repeat itself somehow somewhere kipling and the american were not one but two, and could not be glued together. The American felt that the defect, if defect it were, was in himself. He had felt it when he was with Swinburne, and again with Robert Louis Stevenson, even under the palms of Velima. but he did not carry self-abasement to the point of thinking himself singular. Whatever the defect might be, it was American. It belonged to the type. It lived in the blood. Whatever the quality might be that held him apart, it was English it lived also in the blood. One felt it little, if at all, with Celts, and one yearned reciprocally among Fiji cannibals. Clarence King used to say that it was due to discord between the wavelengths of the man-atoms. But the theory offered difficulties in measurement. Perhaps, after all, it was only that genius soars. But this theory, too, had its dark corners. All through life one had seen the American on his literary knees to the European, and all through many lives back from some two centuries one had seen the european snub or patronize the american not always intentionally but effectually it was the nature of things kipling neither snubbed nor patronized he was all gaiety and good-nature but he would have been first to feel what one meant genius has to pay itself that unwilling self-respect toward the middle of february eighteen ninety two adams found himself again in washington in paris and london he had seen nothing to make a return to life worth while in washington he saw plenty of reasons for staying dead changes had taken place here improvements had been made with time much time the city might become habitable according to some fashionable standard but all one's friends had died or disappeared several times over leaving one almost as strange as in boston or london slowly a certain society had built itself up around the government Houses had been opened, and there was much dining, much calling, much leaving of cards. But a solitary man counted for less than in 1868. Society seemed hardly more at home than he. Both executive and Congress held it aloof. No one in society seemed to have the ear of anybody in government. No one in government knew any reason for consulting anyone in society. The world had ceased to be wholly political, but politics had become less social. A survivor of the Civil War, like George Bancroft or John Hay, tried to keep footing, but without brilliant success. They were free to say or do what they liked, but no one took much notice of anything said or done. A presidential election was to take place in November, and no one showed much interest in the result. The two candidates were singular persons, of whom it was the common saying that one of them had no friends, the other only enemies. Calvin Bryce, who was at that time altogether the wittiest and cleverest member of the Senate, was in the habit of describing Mr. Cleveland, in glowing terms and at great length, as one of the loftiest natures and noblest characters of ancient or modern time. But, he concluded, in future I prefer to look on at his proceedings from the safe summit of some neighbouring hill. The same remark applied to Mr. Harrison. In this respect, they were the greatest of presidents, for whatever harm they might do to their enemies was as nothing when compared to the mortality they inflicted on their friends. Men fled them as though they had the evil eye. To the American people, the two candidates and the two parties were so evenly balanced that the scales showed hardly a perceptible difference. Mr. Harrison was an excellent president, a man of ability and force, perhaps the best president the Republican Party had put forward since Lincoln's death. Yet, on the whole, Adams felt a shade of preference for President Cleveland, not so much personally as because the Democrats represented to him the last remnants of the eighteenth century, the survivor of Hosea Bigelow's Cornwallis, the sole remaining Protestants against a banker's Olympus, which had become, for five and twenty years, more and more despotic over Aesop's frog empire. One might no longer croak except to vote for King Log, or, failing Storks, for Grover Cleveland, and even then could not be sure whether King Banker lurked behind. The costly education in politics had led to political torpor. Everyone did not share it. Clarence King and John Hay were loyal Republicans who never for a moment conceived that there could be merit in other ideals. With King the feeling was chiefly love of archaic races, sympathy with the Negro and Indian, and corresponding dislike of their enemies. But with Hay party loyalty became a phrase of being—' a little like the loyalty of a highly cultivated churchman to his church. He saw all the failings of the party, and still more keenly those of the partisans, but he could not live outside. To Adams a Western Democrat or a Western Republican, a City Democrat or a City Republican, a W. C. Whitney or a J. G. Blaine were actually the same man, as far as their usefulness to the objects of King, Hay, or Adams was concerned. They graded themselves as friends or enemies, not as Republicans or Democrats. To Hay, the difference was that of being respectable, or not. Since 1879, King, Hay, and Adams had been inseparable. Step by step, they had gone on in the closest sympathy, rather shunning than inviting public position. Until in 1892, none of them held any post at all with great effort in Hayes' administration all king's friends including abraham hewitt and charles schurz had carried the bill for uniting the surveys and had placed king at the head of the bureau but king waited only to organize the service and then resigned in order to seek his private fortune in the west hay after serving as assistant secretary of state under secretary Everts during a part of hay's administration then also insisted on going out in order to write with nicolay the life of lincoln adams had held no office and when his friends asked the reason he could not go into long explanations but preferred to answer simply that no president had ever invited him to fill one the reason was good and was also conveniently true but left open an awkward doubt of his morals or capacity why had no president ever cared to employ him the question needed a volume of intricate explanation there never was a day when he would have refused to perform any duty the government had imposed on him but the american government never to his knowledge imposed duties the point was never raised with regard to him or to any one else the government required candidates to offer the business of the executive began and ended with the consent or refusal to confer the social formula carried this passive attitude a shade further any public man who may for years have used some other man's house as his own when promoted to a position of patronage commonly feels himself obliged to inquire directly or indirectly whether his friend wants anything which is equivalent to a civil act of divorce since he feels awkward in the old relation the handsomest formula in an impartial choice was the grandly courteous southern phrase of lamar of course mr adams knows that anything in my power is at his service A la disposition de usted. The form must have been correct, since it pleased both parties. He was right. Mr. Adams did know all about it. A bow and a conventional smile closed the subject forever, and everyone felt flattered. Such an intimate promoted to power was always lost. His duties and cares absorbed him, and affected his balance of mind. Unless his friends served some political purpose, friendship was an effort— Men who neither wrote for newspapers nor made campaign speeches, who rarely subscribed to the campaign fund, and who entered the White House as seldom as possible, placed themselves outside the sphere of usefulness, and did so with entirely adequate knowledge of what they were doing. They never expected the President to ask for their services, and saw no reason why he should do so. As for Henry Adams— In fifty years that he knew Washington, no one would have been more surprised than himself had any president ever asked him to perform so much of a service as to cross the square. Only Texas congressmen imagined that the president needed their services in some remote consulate, after worrying him for months to find one. In Washington this law or custom is universally understood, and no one's character necessarily suffered because he held no office no one took office unless he wanted it and in turn the outsider was never asked to do work or subscribe money adams saw no office that he wanted and he gravely thought that from his point of view in the long run he was likely to be a more useful citizen without office he could at least act as audience and in those days a washington audience seldom filled even a small theatre he felt quite well satisfied to look on and from time to time he thought he might risk a criticism of the players but though he found his own position regular he never quite understood that of john hay the republican leaders treated hay as one of themselves they asked his services and took his money with a freedom that staggered even a hardened observer but they never needed him in equivalent office in washington hay was the only competent man in the party for diplomatic work he corresponded in his powers of usefulness exactly with lord granville in london who had been for forty years the saving grace of every liberal administration in turn had usefulness to the public service ever been a question Hay should have had a first-class mission under hayes should have been placed in the cabinet by garfield and should have been restored to it by harrison these gentlemen were always using him always invited his services and always took his money Adams's opinion of politics and politicians, as he frankly admitted, lacked enthusiasm, although never in his severest temper did he apply to them the terms they freely applied to each other, and he explained everything by his old explanation of Grant's character as more or less a general type. But what roused in his mind more rebellion was the patience and good nature with which Hay allowed himself to be used. The trait was not confined to politics, Hay seemed to like to be used, and this was one of his many charms. But in politics this sort of good nature demands supernatural patience. Whatever astonishing lapses of social convention the politicians betrayed, Hay laughed equally heartily, and told the stories with constant amusement, at his own expense. Like most Americans, he liked to play at making presidents, but, unlike most, he laughed not only at the presidents he helped to make, but also at himself, for laughing. One must be rich and come from Ohio or New York to gratify an expensive taste like this. Other men on both political flanks did the same thing, and did it well, less for selfish objects than for amusement of the game. But Hay alone lived in Washington and in the center of the Ohio influences that ruled the Republican Party during thirty years. On the whole, these influences were respectable, and although Adams could not, under any circumstances, have had any value, even financially, for Ohio politicians, Hay might have much, as he showed, if they only knew enough to appreciate him. The American politician was occasionally an amusing object. Hay laughed, and for want of other resource, Adams laughed too but perhaps it was partly irritation at seeing how President Harrison dealt his cards that made Adams welcome President Cleveland back to the White House. At all events neither Hay nor King nor Adams had much to gain by re-electing Mr. Harrison in 1892, or by defeating him, as far as he was concerned. And as far as concerned Mr. Cleveland they seemed to have even less personal concern. The whole country, to outward appearance, stood in much the same frame of mind everywhere was slack water hay himself was almost as languid and indifferent as adam's neither had occupation both had finished their literary work the life of lincoln had been begun completed and published hand in hand with the history of jefferson and madison so that between them they had written nearly all the american history there was to write the intermediate period needed intermediate treatment the gap between james madison and abraham lincoln could not be judicially filled by either of them Both were heartily tired of the subject and America seemed as tired as they. What was worse, the redeeming energy of Americans, which had generally served as the resource of minds otherwise vacant, the creation of new force, the application of expanding power, showed signs of check. Even the year before in eighteen ninety one far off in the Pacific, one had met everywhere in the East a sort of stagnation, a creeping paralysis, complaints of shipping and producers that spread throughout the whole southern hemisphere. Questions of exchange and silver production loomed large. Credit was shaken, and a change of party government might shake it even in Washington. The matter did not concern Adams, who had no credit and was always richest when the rich were poor, but it helped to dull the vibration of society however they studied it the balance of profit and loss on the last twenty years for the three friends king hay and adams was exceedingly obscure in eighteen ninety two they had lost twenty years but what had they gained they often discussed the question Hay had a singular faculty for remembering faces, and would break off suddenly the thread of his talk as he looked out of the window on Lafayette Square, to notice an old corps commander or admiral of the Civil War, tottering along to the club for his cards or his cocktail. "'There is old Dash, who broke the rebel lines at Blankburg. Think of us having been a thunderbolt of war. Or, what drew Adams's closer attention, there goes old Bootwell gambling like the gambling kid.' There they went." men who had swayed the course of empire as well as the course of hay king and adams less valued than the ephemeral congressmen behind them who could not have told whether the general was a bootwell or bootwell a general theirs was the highest known success and one asked what it was worth to them apart from personal vanity what would they sell it for would any one of them from president downwards refuse ten thousand a year in place of all the consideration he received from the world on account of his success Yet consideration had value, and at that time Adams enjoyed lecturing Augustus St. Gaudens in Hours of Depression on its economics. Honestly, you must admit that even if you don't pay your expenses, you get a certain amount of advantage from doing the best work. Very likely some of the really successful Americans would be willing you should come to dinner sometimes, if you did not come too often, while they would think twice about Hay, and would never stand me. The forgotten statesman had no value at all the general and admiral not much, the historian but little. On the whole the artist stood best, and of course wealth rested outside the question, since it was acting as judge. But in the last resort the judge certainly admitted that consideration had some value as an asset, though hardly as much as ten or five thousand a year. Hay and Adams had the advantage of looking out their windows on the antiquities of Lafayette Square, with the sense of having all that any one had, all that the world had to offer, all that they wanted in life, including their names on scores of title-pages and in one or two biographical dictionaries. But this had nothing to do with the consideration, and they knew no more than Bootwell or St. Gaudens whether to call it success. Hay had passed ten years in writing the life of Lincoln, and perhaps President Lincoln was the better for it, but what Hay got from it was not so easy to see, except the privilege of seeing popular bookmakers steal from his book and cover the theft by abusing the author." adams had given ten or a dozen years to jefferson and madison with expenses which in any mercantile business could hardly have been reckoned at less than a hundred thousand dollars on a salary of five thousand a year and when he asked what return he got from this expenditure rather more extravagant in proportion to his means than a racing stable he could see none whatever such works never return money even frank parkman never printed a first edition of his relatively cheap and popular volumes numbering more than seven hundred copies until quite at the end of his life a thousand copies of a book that cost twenty dollars or more was as much as any author could expect two thousand copies was a visionary estimate unless it were canvassed for subscription as far as adams knew he had but three serious readers abram hewitt wayne macveigh and hay himself he was amply satisfied with their consideration, and could dispense with that of the other fifty-nine million, nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand, nine hundred and ninety-seven. But neither he nor Hay was better off in any other respect, and their chief title to consideration was their right to look out of their windows on great men, alive or dead, in Lafayette Square, a privilege which had nothing to do with their writings. The world was always good-natured, civil, glad to be amused, open-armed to any one who amused it, patient with any who did not insist on putting himself in its way or costing it money but this was not consideration still less power in any of its concrete forms and applied as well or better to a comic actor certainly a rare soprano or tenor voice earned infinitely more applause as it gave infinitely more pleasure even in america but one does what one can with one's means and casting up one's balance sheet one expects only a reasonable return on one's capital Hay and Adams had risked nothing, and never played for high stakes. King had followed the ambitious course. He had played for many millions. He had more than once come close to a great success, but the result was still in doubt, and meanwhile he was passing the best years of his life underground. For companionship he was mostly lost. Thus, in 1892, neither Hay, King, nor Adams knew whether they had attained success, or how to estimate it, or what to call it, and the American people seemed to have no clearer idea than they. Indeed, the American people had no idea at all. They were wandering in a wilderness much more sandy than the Hebrews had ever trodden about Sinai. They had neither serpents nor golden calves to worship. They had lost the sense of worship, for the idea that they worshipped money seemed a delusion. Worship of money was an old-world trait, a healthy appetite akin to worship of the gods, or to worship of power in any concrete shape. But the American wasted money more recklessly than anyone ever did before. He spent more to less purpose than any extravagant court aristocracy. He had no sense of relative values, and knew not what to do with his money when he got it, except use it to make more, or throw it away. Probably, since human society began, it had seemed no such curious spectacle as the houses of the San Francisco millionaires on Knob Hill except for the railway system the enormous wealth taken out of the ground since eighteen forty had disappeared west of the alleghanies the whole country might have been swept clean and could have been replaced in better form within one or two years the american mind had less respect for money than the european or asiatic mind and bore its loss more easily but it had been deflected by its pursuit till it could turn in no other direction it shunned distrusted disliked the dangerous attraction of ideals, and stood alone in history for its ignorance of the past. Personal contact brought this American trait close to Adams's notice. His first step on returning to Washington took him out to the cemetery known as Rock Creek to see the bronze figure which St. Gaudens had made for him in his absence naturally every detail interested him every line every touch of the artist every change of light and shade every point of relation every possible doubt of st gaudens's correctness of taste or feeling so that as the spring approached he was apt to stop there often to see what the figure had to tell him that was new but in all that it had to say he never once thought of questioning what it meant he supposed its meaning to be the one commonplace about it the oldest idea known to human thought he knew that if he asked an Asiatic its meaning, not a man, woman, or child from Cairo to Kamchatka would have needed more than a glance to reply. From the Egyptian Sphinx to the Kamakura Diabuts, from Prometheus to Christ, from Michelangelo to Shelley, art had wrought on this eternal figure almost as though it had nothing else to say. The interest of the figure was not in its meaning, but in the response of the observer, as adam sat there numbers of people came for the figure seemed to have become a tourist fashion and all wanted to know its meaning most took it for a portrait statue and the remnant were vacant-minded in the absence of a personal guide none felt what would have been a nursery instinct to a hindu baby or a japanese jinrikisha runner the only exceptions were the clergy who taught a lesson even deeper one after another brought companions there and apparently fascinated by their own reflection broke out passionately against the expression that they felt in the figure of despair of atheism of denial like the others the priest saw only what he brought like all great artists saint gaudens held up the mirror and no more the american layman had lost sight of ideals the american priest had lost sight of faith both were more american than the old half-witted soldiers who denounced the wasting on a mere grave of money which should have been given for a drink landed lost and forgotten in the centre of this vast plain of self-content adams could see but one active interest to which all others were subservient and which absorbed the energies of some sixty million people to the exclusion of every other force real or imaginary the power of the railway system had enormously increased since eighteen seventy Already the coal output of 160 million tons closely approached the 180 million tons of the British Empire, and one held one's breath at the nearness of what one had never expected to see, the crossing of courses and the lead of American energies. The moment was deeply exciting to a historian, but the railway system itself interested one less than in 1868, since it offered less chance for future profit. Adams had been born with the railway system, had grown up with it, had been over pretty nearly every mile of it with curious eyes, and knew as much about it as his neighbours. But not there could he look for a new education. Incomplete though it was, the system seemed on the whole to satisfy the wants of society better than any other part of the social machine, and society was content with its creation for the time, and with itself for creating it. Nothing new was to be done or learned there, and the world hurried on to its telephones, bicycles, and electric trams. At past fifty, Adams solemnly and painfully learned to ride the bicycle. Nothing else occurred to him as a means of new life. Nothing else offered itself, however carefully he sought. He looked for no change. He lingered in Washington till near July without noticing a new idea. Then he went back to England to pass his summer on the D-side. In October he returned to Washington, and there awaited the re-election of Mr. Cleveland, which led to no deeper thought than that of taking up some small notes that happened to be outstanding. He had seen enough of the world to be a coward, and, above all, he had an uneasy distrust of bankers. Even dead men allow themselves a few narrow prejudices. End of chapter twenty-one